Okay, so I'm ready whenever you are. Okay. Okay, so yeah, we will just uh, start with, um, you know, basically uh, we have a, a quick um, sequence uh, in our video where the interview we uh, just introduce himself or herself. So if you can just, you know, say in a quick sentence, my name is, I live in who you are, you know, in three or four sentences. Okay, sure. Uh, my name is Matri Tong. Uh, I live on the internet. Uh, physically, I'm um, for two months every year. I'm in Paris, and for the rest ten months, I'm over Asia, but mostly based in Taipei, Taiwan. Um, that's it. Okay, thank you very much. Um, yeah, I read in an interview when you were eight years old, you used to draw a computer on a paper sheet mm -hmm. in order to learn programming. Mm -hmm. Is this true? Yes, it is true. So how come? I mean, what? Give you that idea to well, draw. because there were books about computer programming, but computer was very expensive, and uh, we we were not a very rich family, so uh, my parents were not exactly sure whether to buy this, you know, very expensive gadget that was back in 1989, and so um, I learned actually computer is very predictable. Uh, if you know how it works, then you can uh, emulate, simulate how it works on a uh, piece of paper. So I just look at the computer programming box and wrote the program on paper and drew a keyboard and so on, and then uh, simulate how the computer would respond. And after working on that for maybe a few weeks, uh, my parents is finally convinced that I'm perhaps serious about it, uh, but it's pretty formative, which is why I still prefer uh, to use a pencil uh, during the use of uh, my computer time. And when, I mean, how did you discover the, uh, do you remember when you, you first discovered the web and when you, the first time you were connected? Uh, certainly. Um, the web is actually much later. Um, it's around 93, 94. Um, but I was on the internet before that. Um, in 92, um, there was already internet coverage, both when I lived in Germany and when I moved back to Taiwan, that, that was in 93. So uh, around that time, there was really you new know, uh, web. There was Gopher, there was RT, there was FTP, and things like that. And then the web came and changed um, everything in the right world. Okay. Um, I mean, how was the early days of the web in Taiwan? Right. Um, so like most of the uh, rest of the world, uh, the first internet users were people in the uh, academic community people who study computer science, people who, who have this very powerful supercomputer center in many of the Taiwan's universities, especially in Taipei and in Xinzhou. Uh, however, uh, at the same time, Taiwan also has a very vibrant um, bulletin board system um, population. People use this very early modems. There were 300 baht or uh, 1200 baht modems to dial into each other's phones and to set up their own working board systems and leave messages and have you know a lot of conversations. Uh, that was a very early prototype that is, became part of the internet through Fidonet and some other systems uh, later on. But at that time, there was a lot of these local nets uh, apart from the academic community. So when the uh, National Telecom introduced a bridge to the uh, wider internet in 93, a lot of people just switched there because then 
telephone lines don't have to be occupied all the time because at that time people have to buy two lines, three lines, four lines for their modems uh, for the BBS to talk to each other. But when uh, you hop onto the internet, then you just need one line uh, constantly connected. And of course, the modem speed become much faster around 94, 95, and the rest uh, is how we experience the internet. Did you feel, uh, you know, as a privilege to, to be one of the internet pioneers, I would say, in your, in your country? Or is that what it, I mean, did you feel like there was something really new there? And did you immediately see uh, the potential of the internet? Or? Well, um, you see, I was 13 years old at that time. Mm -hmm. um, so um, it was actually very democratizing. Um, the, the initial uh, dial-up fees were not that high. Uh, the telecom did not charge um, special fees for uh, like high bandwidth content or if it was a flat rate. So, uh, and we were still uh, not rich, a rich family. So I, I don't think it's a privilege actually. Um, Taiwanese people already had one of the largest um, population of computer using because uh, a lot of IBM PC clones were manufactured in Taiwan, well, still is manufactured in Taiwan. So there's a lot of access to the hardware. All it takes is for the proper Photoshop to link the hardware together. So I think it's it's um, a, a very much a societal thing, and um, the government especially cares a lot uh, about uh, internet access for the. Um, rural areas for the remote islands and so on. So even at this moment, uh, there's like 80% of Taiwanese population is online, and we ensure that all the rural areas and the remote islands have access to the 4G um, high-speed broadband network, uh, and to, just to not lose um, their connectivity to the rest of the, the mainland society or the mainland society. Okay. Uh, now we'll talk about your childhood in Europe uh, with Chinese activists, uh, as I read, and about your your father being in China. So, how was it to you know? What did you learn from all this experience to be among these kind of people uh, when you were young? Certainly. Um, so um, they they were exiles, right? They couldn't return to their country anymore. And they were blocked from their country because they believed that there is a, a better way for people to communicate with the government, which they perceive as you know not really taking the input uh, from the people. But then again, the student movement uh, in Tiananmen was also characterized by a very chaotic and not very efficient uh, communication, even among the leaders themselves. So um, actually, my father's um, paper, PhD paper, was about the social dynamics between the leaders and the Tiananmen uh, protesters. But it was too too complicated, too impossible, because they were not actually using a uh, effective, archivable, historically, like that you can look behind um, the, the logs, the archives, and see what actually happened. It was very chaotic. It's like a blog and not really um, organized uh, as such. So it's it's a impossible PhD thesis uh, subject. But then by just interviewing and learning and just growing up with them, 
uh, I learned that people from all different sort of fields, uh, they were mostly university students who studied um, like hard science or soft science or, or some other topics. And so everybody wants to learn uh, more in their respective field to uh, make useful contributions. And I think that shaped my early education in that uh, I don't make art artificial distinctions between the schools or the fields because when you're on Tiananmen on the square, uh, there's no um, divisions of what, whatever field or whatever university you're from and so on. <clears throat> Anything that uh, the contributors learn, the knowledge they have in mind, they put it to practical use by collaborating with other people. So I think that's very formative of me. Uh, I don't have this artificial notion of schools or fields or disciplines. Okay, and talking about sharing information, you were an early adopter of Wikipedia. Mm -hmm. So how, how, how was it, you know, to be uh, to discover this kind of knowledge? And how to how did you share the, the info? I mean, you um, did you write some articles on Wikipedia on? Uh, on Taiwan or maybe other 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 subjects, other topics. So tell us more about that. Yes, um, Wikipedia was very late uh, in my uh, history of uh, working with the internet. My first project when I participated in the internet, and that was before the web, uh, was the Gutenberg project. It's still very much alive um, that people can read uh, public domain books. Um, usually published before the First World War because that's how copyright works, right? Uh, so there's a lot of people who have for the past 30, 40 years digitized first by typing and then later on with OCR technologies all the classics uh, into digital files and that's actually the basis of my education. And so um, the result of it is that I learned that everybody can contribute. I was a proofreader. Like uh, if I read something that was OCR incorrectly and so on, I can tell the um, Gutenberg project people to change it so that knowledge is a, a commons. But on the other hand, because it's just classics and not um, like newly written thing, there's a gap uh, between the, the classics and today's world. And I think uh, Wikipedia bridges this gap by having the people working and researching in the frontiers of their respective uh, endeavors to write, to share whatever they have on Wikipedia. So um, on Wikipedia, I have contributed uh, to a lot of uh, fields that I'm interested in. Um, for example, computational linguistics, for example, um, the uh, languages, programming languages like Perl or Haskell and so on, and also um, um, more Taiwan-specific items like acupuncture. Uh, it's something that's uh, very much uh, researched in Taiwan, but not much else uh, in other places in the world and so on. So for the early Wikipedia, I just wrote about things that I knew of. And then later on, when people started writing the article about me and about the project that I work on, I then uh, discovered that Wikipedia is not just the surface of the article here, it's a very um, a huge self-organizing system behind it, uh, the, the neutral point of view, the uh, reason, the deliberative uh, reason of 
like deletion, maintaining, merging articles, formatting of articles, and they're designing Wikipedia not just for human beings, but also for computers to read, for artificial intelligence like Watson to read, so it's also structured data. And because I have learned programming, uh, I can also contribute on um, making Wikipedia not only friendly to humans, but also friendly to machines and artificial intelligences. And that's my uh, co-contribution. Uh, I was a contractor for the Wikimedia uh, Foundation for, for a while. Okay. And talking about other projects you, mm -hmm. you were on, um, you, you joined the Internet Engineering Task Force. Is that right? Or well, I you, mean, you are working with them? I don't. I mean, how exactly? Right. Can you explain what it is? And yes. What was your role there? So, the the fun thing about Internet Engineering Task Force is that it, it's really there's no joining or leaving, right? It, it is just a space, and uh, it has two components. First, it has the online space. Mostly, uh, when I joined, uh, using mailing lists. That is people emailing each other and copying everybody else. And aside from that, they also have face-to-face uh, -face meetings where people can look at each other and learn from each other face-to-face uh, -face in a high bandwidth way. And then afterwards, people go back to their homes and write email, and they save a lot of more time because now they know the people they're talking about. So um, the IEPF is a way for engineers, for um, people working on the internet to talk to each other and for their machines to link to each other. The products of IETF, it's called the requests for comments, the RFCs, they are the laws of the internet. And I mean the law not as in the um, written law, code of laws, in judge or court, they are the physical laws of the internet. They, they decide what is possible, what is impossible. Uh, what is the, the limit and what is the rule that of how internet works. So, uh, <clears throat> and the way for IETF to work <clears throat> is not by voting, it's not by a hierarchy, there's no kings, there's no presidents, there, it's just rough consensus. People talk to each other for months, for weeks, or for years, until mostly everybody has the same idea in their minds, and then they go back to their computer and code those ideas uh, into the laws, into the protocols. So that's roughly how it works. And my role um, during the IETF was mostly around the uh, Atom publication system. Atom is a way for uh, websites to discover each other's content and link to each other. It was designed as a successor to the RSS, the really simple syndicate um, protocol that all the blogs and all the <clears throat> readers like Google Reader or Feedly or things like that uh, discover each other's content. That was my first uh, participation in IDF yeah. process. When did it work? Um, that's a very good question. Uh, I think it was in the early 2000s. Okay. And do you still, do you still have contacts with the ITF? Well, certainly. I mean, um, the, the way IETF works is that um, when people have a lot of um, ideas or they have a lot of RFCs um, to publish, they want everybody to test drive it. So again, just like my early role with the Gutenberg project, my role is to look at the newest RFCs, try to implement it, try to put it into code, 
and see if it actually works or it actually contradict each other and so on and then communicating to the to the drafters so that when they settle on the final versions of the <clears throat> for example the authentication protocol like over the internet how do you prove that you're yourself and so on and uh, when I implement it when I run into problems then uh, the rules can be changed to fit better into the physical reality. So I'm more like the implementers of the RFCs at this moment. Okay. So, and was it this uh, collaboration, I would say, that led you to, uh, to found or to stop the GovZero project? Mm -hmm. Well, okay, can, you, yeah, can you explain what, yes. what this is and what you can do about it? So, um, Zero, uh, I, I did not start Got Zero, the movement. It was started late uh, 2012 by uh, my very good friend, Theo Gao, and uh, three of his uh, like friends. And um, the, the way Got Zero works is uh, we have a slogan called Fork the Government. Uh, and Fork has a very specific meaning in uh, open source development. It means take whatever is here, not rejecting it, but taking it to a different direction. And then when it's taken to a different direction, it's like an experiment. It may fail, and that's okay. But if it doesn't fail, if it works in some way, the original, uh, what we call the upstream people, can merge the, this experiment back into the way uh, it works. So this is a way of a constructive deconstruction of a existing system. And so GovZero works very easily by taking all the Taiwan government's websites, like the environmental agency, like the legislative, like anything, and then because they all end equal gov.tw as their domain name, uh, we just have the only change to a zero. So for example, um, the parliament is ly.gov.tw, and if you change the O to a zero, then you go into this shadow government uh, that is built by Gabriel volunteers, and then uh, it shows the data just in a way that's easier for people to reason about, to understand, and to interact with. And once the government sees that, oh, this is actually a pretty good idea, because we relinquish our copyright using open source licenses, the government can just take those uh, works back. And they have already <coughs> adopted the budget visualization systems, the participatory um, systems on lawmaking, and so on. There's a lot of government work that became uh, officially maintained by the city government and the national government. Okay, it's about hacking politics it is. in a way. Okay, and. Uh, you know, talking about politics, uh, we, uh, we should think about uh, in Taiwan the Sunflower Movement. Um, there was a link between the internet, the web, and this movement, student movement. Can you just, you know, briefly explain it to uh, for a public who doesn't know anything about that? Um, and yeah, maybe then when you explain the the, the link with the, the whole internet thing and the Occupy uh, movement thing. Yes. Um, so, Sunflower Movement uh, was in 2014, in March. And um, around that time, already the uh, Occupy Movement, the Arab Spring, the all, you know, all those uh, Occupies have already taken place. And uh, researchers like Manuel Castells have already. Um, sorry, just a second. I think the microphone is fell. Yeah. We, we probably need more tape. 
Okay, um, right. So, um, the Sunflower Movement happened in um, 2014, in March 18th. Um, and it's at the time when there's already Arab Spring, already all the Occupy movements, and everything has already happened a year or two years before that. And there's a lot of research from uh, sociologists like Manuel Sestels, uh, who wrote a, a book, Communication Power, and then the Network of Outrage and Hope, to analyze the dynamics of the Occupy movements. And that's actually my... Um, interest at that time, so I translated part of Manuel's book uh, a few months before the, the Sunflower Movement happened. So, um, in a sense, uh, it is an opportunity for us to see if we overlay internet on the Occupy Movement, not with, uh, you know, Twitter or Facebook or systems not designed for Occupy, because in other countries, uh, they were repurposing things that they used, like Instagram or Flickr or other services, they were not designed for Occupy, they were repurposed for Occupy. So for Sampler Movement, it is a way for us to, to test if it's possible actually to um, design what we call a situational application, that is to say to write software specific to a Occupy and see how that will improve or change the quality of the demonstration. So. The background uh, was that um, around that time, Taiwan uh, Parliament has passed a very controversial uh, pact, a trade uh, agreement uh, with mainland China, and uh, the Parliament actually did not have a debate on it. It just says um, it is not a foreign uh, trade agreement. So, for example, when we have trade agreement with New Zealand or some other countries, the parliament is required to have a full uh, procedure like uh, public hearing and a debate and so, and so on. There's a system about this. But then, because mainland China is constitutionally considered a part of Taiwan, so uh, it is a domestic issue and the parliament decides that they cannot do anything about it. it is, uh, up for the administration to decide. Now, of course, this violates pretty much whatever everybody in Taiwan thinks about our relationship uh, with mainland China, and so there's a lot of constitutional uh, problems. But then the ruling party, the Nationalist Party, uh, who uh, control the majority of the parliament, decide to just pass it uh, in 30 seconds. So um, with no other recourse of stopping the bill from being passed, uh, a bunch of students just um, uh, climbed over the wall and occupied the, the parliament and to, to stop this from happening. And uh, at that time, I was um, around the legislative uh, building and using my phone and my skills to support the real-time broadcast of the protest. But I did not know, actually, they're going to occupy. Uh, I, I thought there's just a, a huge demonstration that I will... Um, 
supply with my equipment and so on. And this is what Gossier has always been doing. Uh, we supply the communication uh, equipment and skills to the civil society. But when they actually occupied uh, the parliament building, then we have a lot of other logistical issues to solve, like how the rumors spread, like uh, how to manage the logistics, the supplies, the food, the drinking water, um, the demonstrations and so on. And all these is actually very easily um, imagined as a logistical problem uh, on the internet view. So this is what we did. We, we built a uh, on the internet representation of whatever that's happening around the Occupy area. And then we crowdsource everybody with a phone or with a uh, laptop to type in whatever they have heard uh, around the occupied area. And then we set up a projected uh, projector on the outside walls of the parliament that displays in real time what is happening in the occupied area. And then later on, uh, I, I worked with the cable power radio team in Gulf Zero to have uh, the intranet that connects all the occupied areas and the external streets. And we also uh, have a, a fiber optic connection. So with this, uh, even though it's technically three or four different um, sites of occupation, uh, it's linked by intranet and also internet as a single space where everybody can see everybody on the other screen and so on. And this is what enabled then for the next 20 days a very peaceful, deliberative, matter-of-fact discussion of the agreement. And uh, the way it was built was that since the legislator refused to deliberate and we occupied their space, uh, we, we would demo, demonstrate it for them how actually to talk about things like this. And I think that was a very huge success with uh, lots of people viewing the live stream and contributing uh, the real-time transcripts and translating it to uh, like 12 different languages in real time. Okay, yeah, it seems like since this time the political landscape quite changed in, in Taiwan. Mm -hmm. You know, for, for instance, the, the new mayor of Taipei, mm -hmm. um, he was elected, I mean, thanks to social media. Mm -hmm. yes. uh, can you explain us, or tell us, how, according to you, how, mm -hmm. why is it possible in Taiwan to be elected mm -hmm. through or mm -hmm. to, thanks to social media? Certainly. Um, so, uh, as I explained, 80% of Taiwan's population is on the internet, uh, which is I mean, very close to the literacy rate. So. Um, this enabled uh, a very rapid dissemination of ideas, of critiques, of, of conversation, of dialogue. And um, Mayor Koenja uh, was an independent. He did not actually have a party underwriting his campaign. So he had to crowdsource all his uh, team. For example, all the staff, the, the staff for his web campaign and everything, he, he did not know any of these people. He just threw out a, a unicrossal call for volunteers, and the people volunteered uh, for, for his campaign. And this is possible precisely because um, there is this idea called swift trust uh, on the internet. If I perceive that people on the other side of the monitor at least speak the same language as I do, then instead of like building trust over time, I by default trust this person until uh, they did something that makes me think, okay, maybe they're not warranting my trust. And so, and this is fundamentally different from the pre-internet days where if you meet a stranger, uh, there's no way that you will just trust them at the end, right? Uh, it takes time to build a relationship. 
So I think um, Mayor could capitalize on this idea of swift trusting because um, people uh, who volunteered for him also did not know each other. So they very much just did things whatever they, they could. So um, the entire campaign was run in an open source way. All his uh, press, all his um, recordings, all his talks, all his platforms were uh, licensed under Creative Commons and there was a hackathon that promotes all the different ways that you can use uh, these printing materials to build a lot of very different things, like a uh, pop-up uh, of Mayor Kerr that uh, slides out of a web page and talks to you with text synthesis and so on. So there's a lot of very interesting uh, applications. And finally, his platforms like participatory budget, uh, like the open data movement and civic participation and so on, were also uh, published using Gitbook which is a um, version-controlled way of uh, making promises and publishing his promises, and which has an open dialogue under each and every of his platforms. So this becomes a discussion of very specific policies and not just about the person. So Mayor Kurt is more like a symbolism. He's like, uh, I'm just your like, delegate in the government to, to empower uh, all the online spaces. And so his campaign was run very successfully because it promised uh, a, a higher influence of the internet using people through the power spaces in the city politics. So, so he won in the landslide. Okay, and would you be would you say that Taiwan is maybe a really great and unique example of new politics? If you have to compare with Europe, you know, in a, um, with this uh, strong role of social medias mm -hmm. and this as an example in particular, mm -hmm. uh, would you say that Taiwan yeah, is uh, maybe a new symbol for, for use and for uh, young users of the internet, you know, maybe to empower themselves mm -hmm. you know, as politics as, uh, is concerned, uh, in a few sentences if you can you know, talk about that. Mm -hmm. Well, Taiwan is a very unique place. Uh, I see Taiwan as like a lab. A um, innovation for uh, civic participation and social media and so on, because it was uh, very tightly bound. Pretty much everybody's online, everybody speaks more or less the same language and so on, so it's very easy for ideas to spread and to experiment. And the political climate after the Sunflower Movement uh, also has changed. Uh, just today, we have a new prime minister, to, uh, Simon Zhang, who was a Google engineer. And so he actually knows a lot about open data, open governance, and so on. And is not shy from just delegating all the government's data and power and everything invested to, to the public or to the civil society. So I think Taiwan is perhaps unique in this very strong mutual trust between the government and the civil society. And this is something that I think a lot of uh, European nations especially People who worry about the private sector having too much control of the government could perhaps uh, look into and then have more uh, conversations with Taiwan for this kind of uh, collaboration. And do you think this trust will be strengthened I mean, in May when your new president will be in charge officially? Yes, certainly. Um, so Taiwan um, uh, is, is great. I mean, she also ran a campaign uh, that is based on both open source, public, civic participation, unquote. Um, and so 
basically she also published, and this is all straight from Mayor Ko's campaign. I mean, she also said she didn't invent this, Mayor Ko did this before. And so um, she, for example, um, has this campaign where she crowdfunded uh, her campaign using small-scale donations on a uh, symbol of a small piggy bank, right? But she published the piggy bank's 3D uh, STL files as open source uh, online and encouraged people to fork uh, her um, piggy bank symbolisms using 3D printers and using uh, any of the 3D modeling tools to, to make it more attractive. And the best, the most attractive uh, like piggy bank candidates were then exhibited online, 3D printed, and, and so on. So this is, in, in, in a way, a very democratizing way of like everybody could feel they could contribute however small to, to her campaign and her vision. And so, so yeah, I think uh, the same um, principles will be upheld uh, for the next three months or so by Sam John, our current prime minister, and very um, smoothly transitioned to uh, President-elect Tsai's uh, new government. Okay, is she popular in, I mean, among the social media users? Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, okay, and which social media uh, in Taiwan maybe is the most uh, used or the most efficient to uh, to, yeah, to uh, communicate and share information about politics, about uh, or maybe the criticism of China. Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, um, th there are two main uh, social media in Taiwan, and they complement each other. There is one that is where the entire world uses is Facebook. Right, uh, pretty much everybody on Taiwan is on Facebook. There's a projection like uh, in. 10 years or a little bit more than 10 years, uh, there there will be more Taiwanese Facebook accounts than Taiwanese population. So because people have multiple accounts. So um, so there's a lot of people on Facebook. But to complement Facebook, which is more like newspaper, right? It's more like a pastime. Um, we have also the PTT, which is a bulletin board system. And still the way people access the bulletin board system is through SSH um, or through Telnet. That is to say, it pres preserved what when we back in one or two dialed up to those text BBS with you know NC characters color coded and so on. Everything is still preserved. It's like a living fossil, but then it still um, innovates all the time. So this is like uh, Reddit or so on, but without the web. So um, people still use a character-based interface to, to uh, exchange information. And then, of course, every PTT article also has a read-only web copy. And those web copies then become circulated very widely on Facebook. So Facebook is more like a, you know, a second-degree system of uh, discussing. But the serious writers, the serious campaigners, they will register a account on PTT and do the serious writing which is minimally distracted. There's no advertisement, there's no pictures, there's no cat video, so people have to uh, uh, argue with the merits of the ideas alone. So those were the two main uh, systems. And just last week, a lot of people from the Tianya um, uh, bulletin board system, uh, the web bulletin board system in China, has visited the Taiwanese Facebook um, systems and so they had to use VPN and a lot of ways to circumvent the, the Great Firewall. But it was the first large scale, like tens of thousands of people 
visiting the Taiwanese Facebook to have a uh, discussion uh, on, on the China and Taiwan's relationships and so on, but they couldn't actually go to the, the PTP and post there because it's much more exclusive and uh, the threshold for posting is, is much higher. So Facebook is like our, um, I don't know, the, the extra net kind of uh, community university and the bulletin board systems are like the more innocent. Okay, and how would you see the, um, the future of the web in Taiwan? I mean, would it be a space of, uh, late, uh, which is letting more freedom to, to its users, or maybe it would be more used uh, to, yeah, to make a, a political campaign or to send some uh, infos? I mean, how would, would you, if you, if you have, if you were to compare it with the early beginnings uh, in Taiwan? What is the solution, and how do you see it in the future? Certainly. Um, so, actually, so um, actually, the, um, if there is a project called uh, Mozilla, which is the makers of the Firefox browser and a lot of other web technologies. They are one of the main innovators um, on the web. And so, um, Okay. Okay. You, you have another. No, no, no. It's another. Let's call you know. Ah, okay. Yes. I mean, I mean, we can we can go other places, but let's finish this. Okay. Okay. So, um, the future of the West. Um, there's a lot of. Uh, um, um, I, I, I no, no, sorry, it's okay. It's like you're with a friend in one place. Okay. Um, okay, so um, I think that the web has a, a bright future uh, in Taiwan because first everybody's on the web and everybody recognizes the um, ideas of the, the, the early web like the hyperlinks, the citations, the, the things like that, what makes the web unique. So there's a lot of very interesting experiments like a entirely crowdfunded, not-for-profit uh, web uh, publication both, uh, for quality reporting and also for um, dialogue, like TV shows and so on. And they were all like volunteer and open source and creative commons and so on. So, um, so the, oh, yeah. Okay. yeah. So the combination of crowdfunding and crowdsourcing, which has both seen enormous uh, improvement and adoption for the past two years, will certainly uh, continue to change how people assemble themselves, how people gather around, how people deliberate, how people uh, decide their lives together and improve each other's trust as well. And so um, at, at this moment, just this morning, I was talking with uh, my colleagues about setting up the first virtual reality uh, deliberative democracy uh, meeting so that we can uh, look at the, the issues, the problems as a social object, not necessarily everybody fitting into the same room, but people just putting on glasses 
and then see the options, the numbers, the charts, and play back uh, all the relevant information and so on, which is much uh, easier because you have the full attention in the virtual reality space. It's not distracted like in a coffee shop and, and so on. So, so I think it will also enable more empathy and more uh, communication between people and the, the island and the earth and the solar system that we, we all live in and we all share. So, so I think this will further erode uh, the, you know, uh, artificial distinctions between uh, like different cities or different islands or different places of living, uh, any ways of organization or ways of uh, deliberation that we experiment into this lab is then instantly uh, reusable everywhere in the world, in Europe or, or anywhere on Earth's surface. Um, and I think that's, that's our contribution. Okay. Maybe one last question. Last question. Last question. Um, yeah, you you describe yourself as a conservative uh, anarchist, mm -hmm. and at the same time, you you did some. Your, I mean, you're a consultant. Uh, you're working with Apple and big companies. Uh, how do you respond to maybe the criticism you maybe you were maybe facing about that? Is there a paradox between the, these two things, or do you think that it's complementary? Right, so I mean, I, I work with Apple, I don't work for Apple. So, um, the way this is like a ambassadorship, um, my main work uh, at Apple or at the Oxford University Press uh, is actually introducing them to the open source uh, society, the movements, the people who contacted me from those organizations were already uh, friends that I can trust uh, in the open source and free software movements. So the thing is exactly like how I worked with the nationalist uh, party uh, government in the past year. Everybody expects the nationalist party in Taiwan to lose in this election. But still, for the past year, I still worked with the administration to uh, make sure that they could open source and open data exactly to the public how the government works. This is both because it makes transition to the new administration easier, because then everybody knows what the issues is and how the government works. We don't actually switch from one overlord to another overlord. We just convince this particular overlord uh, to, to just make public of their ways of doing things and take inputs and so on. So, um, and this is the same with Apple. I mean, Apple has invented uh, their own programming language, like it's called Swift, and there's a lot of petitions and sounds from the civil society of that it should open source this programming language so that in the future when people write software for iPad or for iPhone, the software can be automatically ported to run on Android or on Linux or on other operating systems. And just through working with the um, civil society, the open source movement, and the researchers of Swift, like uh, Chris, they, they just open source Swift and in, done in, it in a very good way. Because there's two ways of open sourcing. There's token open sourcing, which means just throwing out the code without anything else. And then just say, you know, it's like a check mark that we open source things. But Apple uh, took, took, took a year's time and did it the right way. They published the entire history of from its just the idea to the 
whole language, there's years of history, they published it into history, the discussions, the back and forth, and then they published it in a way that accompanied the full documentation of why the decisions were made. And then they took also the governance proposals like the IETF from the SWIFT youth community so that they could uh, together decide the language's future. And, and all this takes enormous trust uh, at the beginning between people who have to tolerate Apple for taking so much time to prepare and for the people inside Apple to prepare to engage in the real users. But without such uh, ambassadorship, there's no way for, for them to start working with each other. And then Apple will like forever be the same secretive uh, company that we all remember, right? So it's the same as with the government. It has to be some one or two people in the administration believing in like the, the wisdom of the crowd. And then you just establish one link and more links both into the government and into the civil society and just prove at uh, each iteration that they actually uh, go through uh, with their promises, if they promise to respond, they, they promise to publish things, they actually do that and then we can scale out the, the trust. So, so yeah, I don't see any issues uh, working with governments or with Apple or with other entities as long as, you know, it's um, um, equivalent, like there's asymmetry and uh, people respect each other's protocols. And I mean, this is what anarchist is. It, it's saying that governments is a useful abstraction, but we don't have to use that abstraction. We can use other forms of organization. And this is uh, essentially working with the government and with the private sector in a way that is fundamentally uh, Okay, thank you very much. we just have to um, yeah to uh, to take just one minute mm -hmm. to do uh, one question I mean one of the previous questions again because there were some very yeah, sure. so, okay. So, and the question was, yeah, uh, the early days of the web in Taiwan. So maybe we can do this in a minute, you know, very quickly. Right. Um, so, yeah, when I returned to Taiwan in 1994. Um, okay. Um, no, it's, okay. It's, ah, it's a matter of yeah, microphone. Okay. It's a matter yeah. of microphone. Okay. Sorry? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Um, yeah. So the, the web uh, was actually a pretty late thing. Uh, I mean, it's around 94 uh, or so. When I uh, returned to Taiwan in 93, um, I participated first in the uh, BDS, the bulletin board systems, that people use modems to dial e into each other's homes. 
Um, and that is the way that uh, we organize ourselves by dialing into each other's homes and setting up political systems and so on. Uh, on the same time, the people in the academics, uh, they already have early access to the early uh, ARPANET and then later internet, and they, they also uh, set up a Taiwan academic uh, network, which uh, spreads the uh, internet access through the universities in Taiwan. Uh, around 93, um, the Taiwan Telecom has um, decided that uh, digital access is, should be considered a citizen's kind of right instead of just you know the academics and the students using it. So they uh, introduced a relatively cheap uh, dial-up plan uh, so that people who I uh, know and work with in the dial-up BBS could just switch from having three or four phone lines in their accounts into just having one phone line uh, to the internet and switch uh, between the different PBS uh, sites and so on, and Archie and Gopher and, and other early services. And then in '94, uh, when the World Web uh, was invented and introduced, because uh, at that time Taiwan is the uh, major manufacturer of IBM PC clones. Uh, so uh, everybody switched to like Windows 3.1 and Trumpet Winsock and, and so on. And then so there's a lot of people on the web in, in the same time. And it's also through the early Taiwan DBS scene that the Linux culture has found their roots in Taiwan. People were spreading uh, the CD-ROMs of the very early Linux builds and they became uh, the people who run into Linux during those one or two years, become one of the first system operators of uh, websites. Uh, so they successfully switched to from the BBS-oriented culture without losing its roots into a web-oriented culture with hyperlinks and everything, but still with a lot of emphasis on interactivity and editableness uh, of the web that was carried from our BBS. Okay, thanks. Fascinating. Thank you. Thank you very much. Let's get the